Lord God, as we approach uh, your word this morning, we have already collectively declared to you how much we need you. Lord, that without you, we fall apart. Without you, we have no life. We have no reason to live. We have no power or strength in ourselves. And so as we come to your word, Lord, we're looking to you. We're looking at you. We're desperate for you. And so we ask humbly, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. Meet us, Lord, in this place to speak your truth, to encourage our hearts, to draw us towards faithfulness, Lord, to draw out of us worship for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. We are nothing without you. We are desperate for you. We ask now that you would fill our hearts with your presence. Show yourself to be glorious among us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Ezra chapter 4 that we just heard read together. So we're going to spend our time today. Ezra chapter 4. I wonder what, what was the last thing that you started with the best of intentions, but then ended up giving up on? was the last thing that you launched out towards and then ended up falling short? Maybe it was something as uh, low stakes as a new hobby. Uh, maybe you started a new diet or a new workout plan and you just weren't able to, to stick with it. Uh, or maybe it was something more serious. Maybe you gave up on a, an important relationship. Maybe you gave up on your education or a job. Maybe you gave up on an important commitment that you have made. Um, I don't know what that thing is for you, but I would, I would bet that all of us here this morning could put our finger on at least something, on at least one thing that we jumped out towards, that we launched out towards with the best of intentions, only to, only to give up, only to fall short of what we had set out to do. Where we left Israel last week was at a celebratory worship service. They had laid the foundation of the temple, and they had just responded in exuberant praise for for who God was. Uh, Where we left Israel last week, it seemed like they had started out so well. They were eager to get back to Jerusalem and to, to get to work on God's house. And after starting so well, after starting with so much excitement and energy, something happened. And as we're going to see this morning, Israel gave up. They stopped the work. They quit on what God had called them to do. And so as we look back on Israel in in Ezra chapter 4, we're going to ask ourselves some hard questions this morning. Is there something that God has called us to that we have given up on? Is there something that God has called us to that we have given up on? And if we have given up on it, why? Why did we give up? Why did we stop? Why were we cut short? Why did we stall out? Uh, Today we're going to be talking about temptation. Normally when you think about temptation, you typically think of like being allured into doing something bad, being drawn to to make a mistake or or to do some bad thing. Uh, But that's only one side of temptation. That is the temptation to commit sin. But the other side of temptation is the temptation to omit obedience. In other words, if one side of temptation 
is to do something that we're not supposed to do. The other side of temptation is to not do something that we are supposed to do. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. God has called every single one of us here. Uh, you kind of think of it from you kind of think of it like inside out. He's called every single one of us here to do certain things with our minds and with our hearts. He's called every single one of us here to do certain things with our mouths and with our hands. He's called every single one of us here to do, do certain things in our families, in the church, and in the world. There are certain things that God has called us to, and that means that there will constantly, throughout our whole lives, be the temptation to give up, to stop short, and to stall out on what God has commanded us and called us to do. And so the answer to this temptation, the answer hopefully that we're going to land on this morning, where we're going to finish today, is to see that the only way that we can have endurance, the only way that we can persevere, the only way that we can be steadfast in what God has called us to do is, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What you and I need is to get our eyes on Jesus. So as we dive into Ezra chapter 4 today, uh, there's two things that we want to be aware of as we seek to follow through with God rather than to fall away. Two things to be aware of. And the first is this, beware of diversion. Beware of diversion. Um, verses 1 and 2, let's dive into the text. Verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read those again. It says, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So, uh, this first temptation that God's people faced came from an enemy. And we might say that this enemy's first tactic was the friendly approach. Right? It seems like they come up, they offer their services, they offer to help. This all seems good and well and everything. But what we, what we need to see is that in verse 1, we're tipped off to the fact that these are adversaries. These are not friends. These are adversaries. These are enemies of God's people. And so a way to think about this, we might call this the Trojan horse approach. Um, if you've read Homer's Odyssey, which I don't know about you guys, but I was forced to read it uh, in school, so I, I'm sure some of you were also forced to read it. Uh, if you read Homer's Odyssey, you know about the Trojan horse, that the way that the city of Troy was taken down in that book was by what appeared to be a gift. They rolled the horse in, and it appeared to be this peace offering, but it, in, in all actuality, it was their downfall. And this Trojan horse method is exactly what these adversaries first attempt. Now, we'll see later that they attempt a, a different route, but the first attempt is to come in acting like this is a gift, acting like they're here to help. Now, as we work through Ezra chapter 4 today, uh, you and I must keep in mind that we too have an adversary. We have an enemy, Satan, who is the tempter. And I just want to like, you know, let's talk it out a little bit. Satan's first attempt is typically not an antagonistic attempt. His first attempt is this Trojan horse attempt. Satan rarely comes into our lives saying, Hi, 
I'm Satan. I would love to ruin your life. Uh, I'm going to give you six ways that you can make the most terrible decisions ever. Uh, You can ruin all your relationships. You can ruin your relationship with God. And before long, you'll just be in utter darkness and despair. Would you like to be my friend? That is not typically how it goes. No, when when the enemy comes into our lives to, to draw us away from what God has called us to do, he typically first sends something that he thinks we will like. Something that we might think could help us. Something that could be good for us and better for us. But instead, he's trying to defeat us, trying to kill us, trying to devour us. But Satan is just as happy to devour us with distraction as he is to devour us with darkness. Now we need to get specific and ask, why would have accepting help from these people have been a diversion? Why, if Israel had said yes... Would this have taken them off course? And I think if we slow down and read verse 2 very carefully, we're going to see three things rise to the top about why accepting the help would have been a diversion. So uh, first, if Israel had received this help, if, if they had accepted the help, they would have been diverted by syncretism. They would have been diverted by syncretism. Verse 2 begins, Let us build with you. So this is an appeal to join up. It appealed to become a team, and this is what we have to understand. They weren't just offering to help. They were offering to join together spiritually, and that is what we call syncretism. All throughout the history of Israel, uh, Israel's greatest danger for their faith was never atheism. It was never totally casting off the worship of God. The greatest danger for Israel was adding to their worship of God, some other belief and worship practice of one of the gods of the nations around them. Israel's greatest problem wasn't a subtraction problem. It was an addition problem. Now, if the word uh, syncretism maybe sounds a little bit odd, here's two similar words that I think can help us understand what syncretism is. The first is synthesis. All right, synthesis is when you take two ideas and you try to bring them together into a conclusion. So you've got all your data points, and you want to bring those data points under one conclusion. That is to synthesize your findings, to gather ideas together. That's what synthesis means. Um, here's another one uh, that, that, that you might, some of you might really understand. Maybe you've been a part of this before. Synchronized swimming is when multiple people are in the pool, and what's the idea? You want them to all be in sync. It's when the movements are happening at the same time. That is to be synchronized. So when these uh, people seemingly come up to offer their services and they say, let us build with you, they weren't actually offering to help out. They were interested in syncretism, bringing their beliefs and their practices and marrying them to what God, has called, what God had called his people to. And this is this, exactly the kind of thing that diverts so many of us. Um, so many of us have been tempted towards a different religion, a new religion of what we might call Jesus plus. Right? We're not totally cutting out Jesus. It's just it's Jesus plus. Here's a couple examples. Um, one example of syncretism would be Jesus plus New Age spirituality. You know, good vibes, karma, good luck, 
crystals, horoscope, changing your t-shirt at halftime because you think it might affect the atmosphere so that your team would win. Jesus plus. Here's another example. Jesus plus the American dream that the highest goal in life is success, that morality actually equals upward mobility, Jesus plus. Another example would be Jesus plus Mary and the holy sacraments. Right? We're, not, we're not just doing away with Jesus. We're not completely doing away with Jesus. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray to God, but I'm also going to pray to these other people. And, and yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Jesus and, and his death on the cross, but we're also going to do penance, and, and we're also going to participate in these sacraments so that we can add to what Jesus has done for us to save us from our sins. Jesus plus the syncretism. And another example of this would be Jesus plus the prosperity gospel. That if I believe in God, and if I believe hard enough, He'll keep me healthy, he'll keep me wealthy, and he'll deliver my happiness right on a platter, whatever I wish. Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not totally thrown out Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus. That's syncretism. The image that the Apostle Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 6, this is such a helpful image for me when I think about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul explains this concept by, by using the picture of a yoke. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So the idea is that you have this double yoke, and, and there's supposed to be two animals that fit under this yoke. But for the yoke to work properly, the, t- the two animals actually have to be the same size, and they have to be the same strength. Because if they're not, what's going to happen? If one of the animals is stronger or bigger than the other one, you're going to be constantly veering off to the side, constantly struggling to keep that thing on track. And Paul's saying that's exactly what happens when we do Jesus plus. It's the plus that ends up driving, steering us off track. It's the Jesus plus that takes us off from a pure and undivided devotion to the Lord. And so if, these, if God's people had accepted this help, they would have been diverted by syncretism. But secondly, a second, a second thing that they would have been diverted by, they would have been diverted by relativism. They would have been diverted by relativism. Verse 2 continues. We're going to hang, camp out in verse 2 for a little while. Verse 2 continues. For, this is the adversary speaking. They say, for we worship your God as you do. Now, on the surface, this sounds nice. Relativism always sounds nice. It always sounds gracious and tolerant. Relativism is the idea that there is no absolute truth. That because your experience and my experience and your situation and my situation are different, then that means that truth is is relative. It's relative to who you are. It's relative to what you've been through. Relativism says things like, all religions are basically the same, and God is God no matter what you call him or no matter what you believe about him. truth, Truth is true for you, and then I have my truth is true for me. Those are the kinds of things that relativism says. When these adversaries came up and they say, let us build with you, they don't say, because your God is our God. Now, they don't, they don't call him our God. 
They say, we, we worship your God as you do. In 2 Kings chapter 17, if you want to maybe go check this out later, if you're interested in where these adversaries came from, we learn about them in 2 Kings chapter 17. And this is what it says in chapter 33 of that chapter. It says, so, talking about the adversaries here, they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. They feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. So they, so they kind of worship the true God, but not exclusively, not singularly, not intimately, not to the point where they would call him my God, my only God. In his book, Reason for God, Tim Keller gives a, a really helpful picture of, of the problem with relativism. So I'm going to read this excerpt from the book. This is the problem as he paints it with relativism. He says, A common analogy is often cited to get the point across, which I'm sure you've heard, several blind men trying to describe an elephant. One feels the tail and reports that an elephant is thin like a snake. Another feels the leg and claims it is thick like a tree. Another touches its side and reports the elephant is a wall. This is supposed to represent how various religions only understand part of God, while no one can truly see the whole picture. To claim full knowledge of God, relativists contend, is arrogance. And he goes on to write, When I occasionally describe this parable, I can almost see people nodding their heads in agreement. But then I remind the hearers that the only way this parable makes any sense, however, is if the person telling the story has seen the whole elephant. Therefore, the minute one says all religions only see part of the truth, they are claiming the very knowledge they say no one else has, and they are demonstrating the same spiritual arrogance they so often accuse Christians of. When someone says all religions are basically the same, or God is God no matter what you call him, or your truth is true for you, my truth is true for me, that sounds nice, that sounds tolerant, that sounds gracious, but it is, actually, uh, it is actually elitist, it's patronizing, it, it, it puts that person in the position of understanding the, big, the bigger picture, or really understanding how life really works. So there is no your God, my God. If these people had been genuine, they would have come up and said, he's our God, this is my God. Because that is what the one true God deserves. So the first diversion would have been syncretism. Let us build with you. Let us bring our stuff together. The second is relativism. We've got our gods. You've got your God. Well, it's, it's all good. But the third is this, that if Israel would have, accepted, would have accepted this help, they would have been diverted by liberalism. Now, right off the bat, let me be clear. We're not talking about political liberalism. We're talking about theological liberalism. If you were to go home and Google theological liberalism, that's what we're talking about. And this is what we see. Remember, the people speaking in verse 2 are the adversaries, and this is what they say at the end of verse 2. And we have been sacrificing to him, talking about the one true God, ever since the days of Esardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, wait a second. If you were here with us two weeks ago, we spent the whole sermon talking about how the first thing Israel had to do when they came back to Jerusalem is they had to build an altar, and they had to build it according to God's 
plan, and they had to put it in the specific place that God had told them to put it. Why? Because God would only accept worship in a particular kind of way. So what do these adversaries mean when they say they've been, worse, they've been sacrificing to God the whole 70 years that Israel was in exile? What does that mean? How could they possibly have been sacrificing to God that whole time? Well, they were sacrificing to God that way because they were worshiping on their own terms. Their worship was set according to their own standard. They had put themselves at the center of their worship. At rock bottom, the diversion of liberal Christianity is that it places the human being at the center of life rather than God at the center of life. It scoots the authority of God off to the side and it replaces it with the authority of man. It scoots the ethics of God aside and it replaces it with the ethics of man. It scoots the worship of God aside and it replaces it with whatever's relevant, palatable, and profitable at the current time. And that's why if we're not careful, we're constantly having to reinvent ourselves. We're constantly having to shift and change. Because rather than being grounded in the one true God, we're at the center. And so we have to shift and mold and shape our religion to suit ourselves. Maybe you've heard of the phrase Copernican Revolution. Um, In the 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus taught the world that, lo and behold, the earth was not at the center of the universe. Who could have dreamed that human beings and the place where we lived wouldn't have been right where everything else revolved around? And that is always right at the heart of the temptation of diversion. It's this simple step. This is the simple temptation. It's to slide Jesus out to the margin of our faith and slide ourselves into the center of our faith. It seems innocent. It seems harmless. But when we've pushed Jesus out and we've pushed ourselves to the center, we've lost Christianity. We've lost the pure worship of God. Now, this leads to the hinge of this passage. Verse 3 is sort of a hinge between the first temptation and the second temptation. And I think it's important for us to to read it carefully and thoughtfully, because I think it helps us understand what happens in the rest of the passage. Verse 3 says, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So on the surface, it seems like they passed the test. Right, The temptation came, they stood strong, they didn't let the people come in and help them. It seems like they've done the right thing. It seems like they stood strong. But I think it's in that last phrase of the verse. 
where we see that maybe something was off. It seemed like, like mostly right, but there's just something that seems off about this. Instead, when, when they come up and they ask them to help, instead of saying, we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as God has commanded us to do, they say, we alone will build to the Lord as King Cyrus has commanded us to do. So it seems like they've stood strong. It seems like they've held their ground. But I think this is what's happened. In attempting to withstand temptation, in attempting to be pure and stand strong, they actually ended up becoming self-reliant. And when you've stepped out, even in an attempt to withstand temptation, when you've stepped out in your own strength, you become susceptible to discouragement. Because now... It's up to you. Now, it's in your hands whether you stand, stand strong or fall. And as we see in, that was perfect timing. We're transitioning. That was good. We're good. That normally happens like right in the middle of the most important thing in the sermon. But it's okay. We're transitioning. Um, all right. So, the second thing we have to be aware of today, we have to be aware of discouragement. As soon as you stepped out, Maybe you've even tried to withstand temptation. You've tried to push back the attempt, the allure, but you're, you're out in your own strength, and now you're susceptible from a totally different point. Verse 4 and 5 say, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then if you look down in verse 24, the last verse in the chapter, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So when these adversaries, when the enemy turned from the friendly approach, turned from the Trojan horse approach, And now they took the antagonistic approach. Israel folded. Israel collapsed. They fell short of following through on what God had called them to do. And I see at least four forms of discouragement that stalled these people out that I think you and I also have to be aware of for our lives as well. Four discouragements that was true for them that I think become just as true for us. So let's work through it, four of them. First, God's people gave up because they were discouraged by fear. They were discouraged by fear. Verse 4 says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Fear is the threat of potential pain. Fear is all about the future. It's all about what might happen if. And fear is a serious discouragement for people like you, people like me, who are attempting to follow Jesus. Fear of what people will say, fear of what people will do, fear of not having what it takes, fear of failure. And in our fear, we seize up. We stop. Instead of moving forward with what God has called us to do, we give up. But it's in those moments, in those moments of fear, when we're tempted to give up because of our fear, it's in those moments when we have to remember that our God is in control of the future. 
And we have to remember that if we are in Christ, if you're in Christ, if you believe your way into Jesus, there is no possible future scenario where you don't end up in glory with Jesus. In uh, Romans 8, when the Apostle Paul, he's attacking our fears, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which by the way are real and hard and difficult, but he says they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Fears are real. They're going to come. But if you're in Christ, if you believe your way into Jesus, the rock-solid future for you is glory with Jesus. And we need to, we need to remember that when our fears come. Uh, a second reason that God's people gave up is because they were discouraged by frustration. They were discouraged by frustration. I think this will resonate. Verse 4 continues, They made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So these adversaries had apparently found a way to get in. They had bribed their way into the internal system. They were messing with the plans. They were messing with the schemes. They were messing with the production. And as the frustration started to mount, as the difficulty started to add up, as the annoyances and the irritations added up, it broke the spirit of God's people and so they quit. And frustration is a very real discouragement for us. Right? We get frustrated when things aren't working the way we want them to. We get frustrated when life just gets annoying. We get frustrated when we're so irritated because stuff just doesn't seem to be smooth. It just seems like we're always running against the treadmill. And so we give up. But it's in those moments that we must remember that Jesus has promised to build his church. And so while Satan might frustrate my plans, he cannot frustrate God's plan. While Satan might frustrate my plans, he cannot frustrate God's plan. John Bunyan was a uh, pastor who lived in the 17th century in England. Bunyan was arrested for preaching the gospel, but while John Bunyan was in prison, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress has been translated into over 200 languages. It has never been out of print, and it has sold 250 million copies. Satan frustrated Bunyan's purpose but God's purpose prevailed. There have been more people reached and saved and encouraged through that book that he wrote in prison than could have ever been saved or encouraged through tw those 12 years of him actually getting to preach when he, when he was alive. Right? We have to remember when we're feeling frustrated, when it just feels like everything seems to be going wrong, we have to remember that our Savior Jesus conquered death by dying. That what Satan meant for the greatest evil, God used for the greatest good. That it might just be that right in the middle of our frustration, that is actually God's plan for victory. And so the frustrations mounted up and they gave in. A third thing that we see is that God's people gave up 
because they were discouraged by false accusations. Now, I think we need to understand what's going on in the text of, of Ezra chapter 4. Uh, if you're just like reading through this and you, and you just read it one time fast, it gets kind of confusing. All of a sudden, a bunch of kings start, names start popping up. You're trying to run with the dates and everything just doesn't quite seem to be lining up right. And this is what we have to understand. Verse 6 to verse 23 is a parenthetical thought. It's not out of place, but it's not working chronologically in the timeline. The author of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is actually just one book, is grabbing a case study from his present day, and he's inserting it into Ezra 4 so that you and I can see the kinds of things that were being leveled against God's people the whole time that they were building, not just the temple, but the whole time they were building the temple, Jerusalem, and the wall, uh, as we'll see if we read carefully. So this is, this is the kind of accusations that were being made against God's people the whole time that they were attempting to, to follow through on what God had called them to do. Let's read verse 6 first. Verse 6 starts out by saying, And in the reign of Ahersius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then it follows up, and it tells us about another accusation that was written to Artaxerxes. And I want to read verses 12 to 14. This is the heart of the kind of false accusations that were hanging over the heads of God's people the whole time they were there. This is 12 to 14. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from us, uh, from you to us, have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore, we send and inform the king. So what was this letter? This was a tattletale. They realized that they couldn't do anything about it, and so they wrote to the king a false accusation. Oh, king, this will be to the detriment of your kingdom. And nobody likes to be falsely accused. No one enjoys being judged. No one does well when people say stuff about them that's not true. And that's why this discouragement is just as relevant for us as it was for them. Right? If you step out to follow Jesus... You know, there'll be some things said about you that aren't true. Things that you believe, things that you say. People will tell you how you view other people. They'll tell you how you're supposed to think about this or think about that. Um, I was trying to think about a couple of situations I have had over the years. Um, one came to mind uh, when I was a, a college student at Coastal. I don't know, it was just like the weirdest thing. This one guy, just like, he knew I was a believer, and he just wanted me to, he wanted to hear me say certain cuss words. I don't know, he had such an infatuation with me saying certain cuss words. So he'd come up to me like almost every day and be like, hey man, would you just say this word? Would you just say this one word? And just like, honestly, it just got annoying. It just got frustrating. And then like one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me when I was in seminary, uh, I got this job over the summer uh, at this apartment complex. And it was like my first day on the job. I'm sitting beside this new girl, 
and we're kind of talking about our lives and stuff, and I told her, you know, I was, a, I was a student at the seminary, and she just looked over at me, and she asked me the weirdest question. She said, do you believe in sex? It's like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I... I was just, I didn't, honestly, I like, just feel like I blacked out. Like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, this is a trap. Like, this, I don't, like, what do you do with that? Like, you guys know, man, if you ch- genuinely try to follow Jesus, if you genuinely try to get out there and, like, share Jesus with people and talk to people, like, people are going to say ridiculous things about you. They're going to think that you believe all sorts of weird stuff. They're going to think that you hate certain people and that you're this or that. And that stuff can start to mount up, and, and we just... It keeps us from following through with what Jesus has called us to do. And in those moments, we have to remember certain things. This is, this is why in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, he's pleading with us not to be discouraged by accusations. He's giving us a shield for understanding how to deal with these accusations. And he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. In other words, when you're being falsely accused, this is what you've got to know and believe in your heart. The judge is the one who died for you. The judge is the one who was raised for you. The judge is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. The judge is also your lawyer who's advocating for you who's interceding for you, that there is no accusation that you bring against yourself, that Satan brings against you, or that anyone else brings against you. There is no accusation, if you're in Christ, that can stick. And we've got to believe that. We've got to know that. Or else we'll get really discouraged by those false accusations, those false words. And then... The final thing we see, the final discouragement that we see is that God's people gave up uh, because they were discouraged by force. They were discouraged by force. Verses 21 to 23 tell us what happened. So this is the letter, the piece of the letter we read was a letter sent to Artaxerxes, and then this is, this is his response, part of his response. He said, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease. And that this city not be rebuilt until the decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, verses, verse 23, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So have we been too hard on the Israelites? Have we been a little too tough on them? They actually had the threat of force to to cause them, to force them to cease, to force them to stop. So maybe we've been a little too hard. But I think this is why we have to remember what had gone wrong back up in verse 3. That because their hearts weren't ultimately grounded in the sovereign God and in His call, but because they had grounded part of their heart in the command of King Cyrus, that when the authority of man came up against the authority of God, they weren't in the place to believe that their God was the sovereign Lord who can make the sun stand still, who can part the waters so that people can walk across on dry land, 
who can save us from the fiery furnace, who can shut the lion's mouths. I love in the book of Acts, Peter gets thrown in prison. And you think, oh no, what's he going to do? And then all of a sudden an angel shows up and Peter gets taken out of prison through the wall. You're like, whoa, maybe God exists. Maybe God is actually sovereign. Maybe he is actually more powerful than anything in the world. And so you and I, we, we have what we feel like are these perceived pressures to compromise. We feel like we're being forced to, to not do something. But in those moments, we have to remember, again, what Romans 8 tells us, if God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, it's almost like he has these types of scenarios in mind when in Romans chapter 8, kind of the punchline of this chapter, he writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, imagine yourself. You're there that day. You're supposed to be building the temple. It's your job. And all of a sudden, these people roll up with their swords, and they're, they're like threatening your life. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So these discouragements, the fear, the false accusations, frustrations, even sometimes force, they kind of mount up, right? And they keep you from wanting to follow through. They keep you from wanting to do what God's called you to do. Maybe, maybe you tried to share the gospel one time and you just didn't feel like it went well. And so you just got discouraged and, and you said, you know what? Maybe that's just not for me. There's other people in the church that are good at that, and I'll just, you know, I'll just let them handle that. And you just got discouraged, and you gave up from wanting to share your faith anymore. Or maybe you, like, you wanted to read your Bible every day, and, and you, you thought, okay, this time is the time. And then at some point, you just got tired of feeling guilty when you let five or six days go by, or ten days, or a month go by. And just hate that feeling of guilt. You just hate the feeling of, of being ashamed of not following through on your commitment. And so you just said, you know what? This is just not worth it. And you gave up. Or maybe you wanted to serve here at the church. You had something in your heart that you wanted to get involved. And, and you tried to reach out. And maybe there was a miscommunication. And it just seemed like your schedule just didn't line up. And things just weren't going well. And it was just like frustration after frustration. And then you just said, you know what? I got my own life to live. I'm just going to, you know. And you, and you gave up on something that God had put in your heart. We've got to know that the second we step out to follow Jesus, the second we step out to put our faith in him and trust in him and walk with him, the discouragements will come. We will be tempted all along the way to stop, to give up, to give in. In, uh, in 1782, a young pastor named Charles Simeon began his ministry at Holy Church, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge uh, in England. Um, he was a man committed to preaching the true gospel at a time in England when that was not popular. And so here's this guy, he's 23 years old, and he, and he shows up to the church. And uh, what we have to understand, what we have to understand about life, life in those days in the church is that one of the sources of revenue for the church is that they would actually sell pew boxes 
If you've ever been to like an old, old church, maybe you've, you've seen something like this. So it would be like, imagine this room, like every few feet there's like a box. And that would be like your box. You would pay for that box. And it would get your, your name on it, your plaque. You would kind of bring your own little couch and maybe a little heater. And that would be like your spot for, for church. Well, these people were so upset by what Charles Simeon was preaching, the true, faithful, biblical, Christ-centered preaching that, that he was bringing forward that not only did most of the prominent members stop attending, but they locked their pew boxes so that the people who would come to the church to worship would actually have to sit on the floor. That lasted for 10 years. 23 years old, walks into church, and all the prominent members have locked up the seats. That's the kind of discouragement, the kind of frustration that would make you want to quit, make you want to give up. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before going to the cross, he said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I want to invite you to take your communion uh, pack and open it up. You've got the cup and the bread there. And I uh, just want to talk through what this looks like to, to focus on Jesus, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to look to Jesus in the midst of our diversions and discouragements. I want to ask you this question. And then share some thoughts, and hopefully you can be reflecting on it. Here's the, here's the questions. What has God called us to that we've given up on? Why did we give up? And how will looking to Jesus make the difference? As you, as you stare at those elements, this, this bread, which represents the body of Jesus, this cup which represents the blood of Jesus. I just want to share two, two ideas with you, two things that we need if we are going to endure, if we're going to follow through, if we are going to not give up. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that means two things. The first is this. If we're going to endure, if we're going to keep going, we must consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider that this Jesus was tempted with more glamorous diversions and deeper, darker discouragements than you and I could ever imagine. And yet, this Jesus pressed through all the way to the end when from the cross, dying for our sins, he yelled out, It is finished! Consider this Jesus so that you'll know that if your laundry list of things that you've failed at, that you've given up on, that you haven't followed through at, if your laundry list is a mile long, 
the grace of Jesus goes further. What He has done for us makes up for every failure, every attempt that has fallen short. So consider this, Jesus. And then, secondly, call upon Jesus. Call upon Jesus. In Hebrews 2, verse 18, it says, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus can come to your help because He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you're going through. And He's conquered it, which means He knows how to help you conquer it. Charles Simeon, who I talked to you about, who had his pews locked up, he ended up continuing faithful in his ministry for 54 years. And this is what he said, commenting on Hebrews 2.18. He said, But however severe your outward or inward trials may be, you have the comfort to reflect that Christ endured the same before you and is able to afford you effectual assistance. Think not then that your difficulty is peculiar or insurmountable, but assure yourselves of his sympathy and care and be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So I ask you again, what has God called us to that we've given up on? Why did we give up? And how will looking to Jesus make all the difference? How will looking away from everything else and, and focusing, fixing our eyes on Jesus make all the difference? Jesus gave his disciples his bread and his cup, and he told them to do this in remembrance of him because he knew how weak we are. He knew how prone we are to fall to temptation. And he wanted us again and again and again and again to fix our eyes back on him. So this morning, I want to invite you to take this as the body of Jesus and take this as the blood of Jesus and to do it in remembrance of the Lord. God, we're all tempted to give up in so many ways. We're all tempted to fall short of what we know you've called us to do. Lord, maybe we just feel like we've failed so many times that it's not worth trying again. Maybe we're just so afraid of the potential future. Lord, maybe we're so enamored by that, that other opportunity, that other thing. God, I pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would set our eyes on Jesus, that we'd be able to fix our eyes completely on him, that right now, even as we join to sing and celebrate this morning, that we would start looking away from all that's hindering us. We would start looking away from all that's wrong, Lord, and that we would begin to look towards you, that you are our good, that you are the beauty, that you are the thing that we long for and love and desire, and you are the Savior who has saved us from our sins and captured our souls. Lord, this morning, set our affections upon you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship. Amen.